Hello there, and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge, your hyper-local progressive podcast focusing on beautiful Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I'm Dan, and today we're continuing our coverage of the Democratic primary in Brooklyn's 22nd State Senate District. Last episode, we brought you our interview with Ross Barkin, and today we'll be getting to know the other Democrat in the race, Andrew Gennardis. Both are running to take on Republican Martin J. Golden in the general election this November. The 22nd State Senate District is a custom-made gerrymander for Mr. Golden and incorporates Bay Ridge, Diker Heights, Bath Beach, Bensonhurst, Gerritsen Beach, Manhattan Beach, and parts of Gravesend, Sheepshead Bay, Midwood, and Marine Park. This episode is also coming out on June 5th, the beginning of petitioning for local and state primaries, including those of Ross and Andrew. But before we get started, the entire crew here at Radio Free Bay Ridge would like to give a heartfelt thank you to all of our neighbors. This past weekend was the Fifth Avenue Festival, hosted by the Bay Ridge Business Improvement District. It was, as always, a wonderful day of food, shopping, ride, and friends. But all the more so this year because we got to set up our mobile studio right on Fifth Avenue and kick-started our Bay Ridge Oral History Project. There were calls to political action, stories from veterans about confronting their past, stories about dealing with school, stories about mistaken identity and being lost, unable to speak the language. There were stories about social justice and stories about helping others both next door and across oceans. Sixteen of your neighbors and friends sat down to share their memories of Bay Ridge, and we can't wait to share them with you this summer. And if you weren't able to stop by, we'll be looking forward to seeing you at more neighborhood events in the near future. With that said, let's get right into Andrew's recent interview with myself and co-host Rachel. Hi, so we're here today in the studio with Andrew Gennardis, who is running against Marty Golden for State Senate. Hello. Welcome. Hi, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Great. Do you want to tell us about how you came to the Senate race and some of your background? Sure, sure. So uh, I grew up in Bay Ridge, spent my whole life living here, and I've been very involved in the community since I was young and worked for City Councilman Gentilly for a number of years. I served on the community board for a few years, graduated Fort Hamilton High School, as did my brother, sister, and mother. And we all had the same English teacher. Whoa. So uh, my mother's senior year of high school, she had Mr. D'Ambrosio. Uh, and then I had him for senior year, and my sister had him for senior year. And then so did my brother. So um, our family's roots go through a long time in this neighborhood. And uh, I decided to run for the Senate. And currently, I work for the borough president as his general counsel. But I decided to run for the state Senate because I think that a lot of the issues that our neighborhood's facing year after year after year incredibly lackluster and disastrous, let's say, mass transit service, especially subways, you know, pedestrian safety issues, Mm -hmm. uh, education issues, they don't seem to be getting any better. And when you look at who our leadership in Albany has been, it's been Senator Golden for the last 15 or 16 years now, and these problems aren't getting any better. So, you know, this was very much a classic example of if you're seeing problems in the world and they're not getting fixed, well, then take it upon yourself to try to fix them. Uh, and that's why I decided to run for the Senate this year. The core services really haven't improved. Well, and, and you know, with Bay Ridge Avenue, one of the big criticisms was that we didn't get an elevator. And, we, you know, we're supposed to get one down at the end of the R train. And that hasn't happened either. That's exactly right. Yeah. And they've just canceled a lot of the improvements they were supposed to be making, haven't they? Yeah. The MTA board just put a, a hold on their uh, the station renovation program where they identified, I think, 30 stations across the city that yeah. would get capital improvements. 
Um, but you're absolutely what I think this is really a symptom of, and I think we're starting to see a change in this, is that for a long time, people haven't realized the power or the impact that state government has on their mm. daily lives. Everybody knows who their city council member is. Everybody knows who the mayor is because there's a proximity. You see yeah. it every day. You hear it every day. Everybody knows who the president is because you see him in the paper every day. People don't pay attention to what happens in Albany, even though Albany has so much to say over how we live our daily lives here in Brooklyn. You know, you talk about education, you want to talk about transportation, mass transit, pedestrian safety issues, you want to talk about property taxes, you want to talk about the rent being too damn high. You know, you name it, you name <laughs> yeah. it. And, you know, the city has very little direct control over what it can do to administer itself and govern itself. It all goes back to Albany. So, you know, we're seeing people who for a long time were conditioned to not pay attention to Albany. You know, they see things happening locally. They'll see Marty Golden host a summer concert series, which, you know, is great and fun and nice and great music and a great way to spend that summer night. Mm -hmm. But they don't associate the fact that we don't have an elevator at 86th Street for the last 15 years, even though we've been promised one, as a problem coming out of Albany. And you're starting to see that shift now, I think, with the election that happened last year. This new level of activism we're seeing across the country, which has been, frankly, astonishing and phenomenal to witness and to be part of. People are now realizing, not just in New York, but across the country, the power that state capitals have and why state government and why local politics actually matters. So one of the things is that a lot of people, when they're engaging in politics in New York City or complaining about issues that they have, they seem to think New York's a blue state. Everything that comes out of New York is blue. Really, it's not that. I don't think a lot of people understand that in Albany, it really isn't solidly democratic. It's a major give and take with Republicans, and specifically that means the Senate, and specifically that means Marty Golden. As you go further west in New York State, it gets redder and redder and redder until you suddenly get to like inner city Buffalo, which is very blue, and then the suburbs again are kind of purpley on the side of red. Yeah. No, that, that's exactly right. You know, um, you know, Albany, the state Senate is controlled by Republicans and they're empowered, frankly, by, you know, eight uh, turncoat Democrats, you know, breakaway mm -hmm. Democrats, whatever, whatever term you want to use. Uh, and that adds to our woes. And you're absolutely right. You know, it's perceived to be a solidly blue Democratic state, but it's really not. And there are many, many shades of blue. And that's a problem, not just in terms of Democrat versus Republican. It's a problem even Democrat versus Democrat. It's a problem just to get people to engage in local politics in the first place. I mean, look at our voter participation rates. You know, I think we're 47th in the nation for overall voter participation. Wow. But we're 49th when it comes to primaries. I think last year we had 16% of eligible voters voted in the primary. I mean, that is abysmal. Uh, and you have so many people who have been in office for so long, Democrat and Republican. I mean, this, is, this goes yeah. across the board. You know, who don't go out and engage new communities, don't go out and engage new voters, don't make it a priority to register new voters. Because of that, you have low turnout elections and you have people who get fed up with the system. Oh, nothing changes. Yeah. And because they feel like they're, they're shut out from a process that does not include them. So across the board, there's a lot that we can do to be increasing not just voter participation, but just general civic engagement. In terms of voter participation, I know we've seen a little bit of movement in city elections, but what's the deal up at the state Senate? The voting laws in Albany are so antiquated, they might be some of the worst in the country. Uh, when we talk about today in 2018, you can only still vote on one day, whereas many other states are moving to yeah. multi-day voting processes. And even if it was just that one day, I think it should be more than one day. But we pick a Tuesday. 
You know, and most people, they work. Some people get up to leave their house to go to work at 4 in the morning, and they don't get home until 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night because they're stuck riding the subways for two and a half hours. Yeah. The system is set up to discourage people from voting. If you want to register to vote, good luck. You know, the number of times that I've registered voters and then I've submitted in registration forms, either through the mail or in person, and then those registration forms never get processed, it's not uncommon for me to have to submit someone's registration form two or three or four times because our Board of Elections is set up in a way that it's a partisan body. It has equal representation of Democrats and Republicans, but it's designed to let the status quo kind of flourish. Let's talk about changing your registration. If you're not associated with a party, which is fine. Some people don't feel they can be put into a box, Democrat, Republican, whatever. Uh, and that's totally legitimate. But if you want to have a say in the political process, if your political views change one way or the other, and you want to register for a party, if you're currently an independent and you want to vote in the upcoming Democratic primary for Congress, let's say, yeah. uh, it's too late to change your registration. You would have had to change your registration last October. So, And this is what the New York state law allows. So there's been a big push at the state level, uh, especially among some of the champions such as State Senator Michael Gennaris and State Senator mm-hmm. Brian Kavanaugh making a big push to reform our voting laws. And I would say on the assembly side, the push is really being carried by Assemblymember uh, Bobby Carroll from Windsor Terrace to fix our broken voting system. Something else I'd love to see that Assemblymember Carroll's been very good on is lowering the age to vote for people. Mm. Uh, I'm really excited about the idea, at least at the municipal level, to have 16 and 17-year-olds vote. We're electing leaders, you know, now with mayoral control of the education system. We're electing people who have a direct say on our education system. Shouldn't the people who are affected by that education system have a say in what happens? Yeah, that's a really interesting idea, getting the 16, 17-year-olds who are currently in the system to actually have a say in who's in charge of it. And by doing that, you actually, you know, you give them a head start to create a pattern and history of voting so that once they turn 18, they will continue to vote. Uh, Mm. What we often see is that once you turn 18, you you go off to college and you don't register and then you come back and you wait a couple of years and then, you know, you're 26, 27 when you actually start to register to vote. You know, it's a habit, like all habits, right? If you keep doing it over and over again, it'll become routine. If we teach young people to vote at an early age, they'll continue voting throughout the rest of their teenage years and their early 20s and so on. Uh, and that would be fantastic. That's something that the city has already identified as a solution to engaging young people in the community board. 16 and 17 year olds can now have a say in ULERT processes, deal with sanitation, your agencies, but you still can't vote. And they realized that they needed to have 16 to 17 year olds because, yeah, again, when you go to college, you drop out of that system. And we don't want people's first interactions with the electoral process to be through absentee voting. You want it to be in a ballot box. And I would take that a step further. And it's not just about that. You know, we want people to be excited about voting, not just when it's a presidential election, not just when we have really you know exciting mm-hmm. candidates, a Barack Obama, a Bernie Sanders, a whoever, right? We want people to be voting even when it's not sexy, mm-hmm. right? Voting should be sexy all the time, but we want people to be voting for bond issue referendums. We want people to be voting for every, because that is the very definition of our democratic system, right? We need people to vote. If you don't show up, then you lose your voice. It's so critical. So we are seeing in Bay Ridge, especially in this age of Trump, we're seeing a lot more young people coming out of the woodwork and engaging. I'm feeling like there's a huge surge of new activity. How do people get started in the political process in Bay Ridge? First of all, it's fantastic to see so many people getting engaged now, this last year especially. And as someone who's been you know, working on political organizing uh, and social justice organizing in Bay Ridge for quite some time, for a while, it felt like a very lonely fight. And I'm glad to see that we have so many groups springing up, so many people saying, you know what, 
the status quo is not acceptable. We can do better. We can do more. The truth is you can start at any age, whether you start when you're a teenager or whether you start when you collect your first you know, social security check. It doesn't matter. As long as you're showing up, that's a great start. And I think really the key to that is getting involved in local campaigns and just showing up and saying, hey, I want to volunteer. One of my best volunteers, right? So I ran for office five years ago. I ran for the state Senate again. I was uh, Marty Golden's first challenger in about a decade, first serious <laughs> challenger in about a decade. And I was two years out of law school. So I was 26 and you know, I was young and idealistic and I thought I could change the world just by saying I wanted to change the world. And we ran a very, very strong grassroots campaign. We got just under 43% of the vote during that election. We won Bay Ridge by over 1,000 votes. So it was bound to scare Marty. (laughs) We did very, very well. And the reason I bring that up is because one of the volunteers who helped on our campaign was just a high school student. Mm. And he was one of the best canvassers that our campaign had. Anyone can get involved in politics and community engagement just by showing up at a campaign office and say, hey, I want to help out. It's a great way to do it. Another way to really get involved, I think, on the other side is to show up at community meetings, get involved in different community groups. Um, Going to a community board meeting is a great way to learn about your neighborhood and to get involved. You don't have to be a board member to show up. Anybody Mm -hmm. can show up. Anybody can ask questions. There's public forum opportunities. And Uh, and actually right now in Bay Ridge, they're live streaming our community board meetings, right? right? Yeah. Which is great. You you don't even actually have to physically show up. But you should. But you you absolutely should. 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 (laughs) And also thinking about the merging of those two worlds, merging the social activist world with that, getting engaged in local community boards. If you're a member of a local activist organization, by all means, send a representative out to your community boards, go up for the two-minute public speaking segment, talk about what you're doing and engaging within the community, start making those connections. You learn a lot about your community that way. You learn about the people in your community, you know, the other perceived community leaders. You know, if you're a community board member, you're one fifty out of a neighborhood of 200,000, right? So you're kind of been selected. So you, whether you like it or not, are identified as a community leader. You get to learn who these leaders are. And you get to learn about issues that are really going on in your neighborhood. And it's a great way to kind of get involved, even at that level. Um, so I think it's, it's a dual track. It's getting involved early with the political process, but also getting involved in the community level as well. And they do intersect time and time again. So how did you first get started? Like, why did you first decide to run against Marty Golden just right out of law school? You know, thankfully, my parents raised me uh, and my younger brother and sister with this understanding that we have an obligation to be active participants in our community. Mm. And it was really through their example that I learned the value of service to others. And it's not just a throwaway line. It's something that I really believe in. Um, So like I said earlier, I worked for Councilman Gentile. I started working for him when I was in high school. My first political experience was volunteering on his state Senate campaign when he unfortunately lost to Marty Golden back in 2002. And then I worked on his special election campaign for the city council in 2003 where he won by 31 votes. So if anyone says that voting doesn't matter, I want you to hit them because they are wrong. (laughs) We're not Um, advocating violence. We're not advocating (laughs) violence. I want you to hit them in a civic-minded sense, okay? Um, You know, take out your pocket constitution and just wave it at them very, very fervently. Um, I do. I left my wallet downstairs, but I do have a copy of the constitution in my wallet. Carry with me everywhere. And so I started out there. And then from that experience, when he won the city council race, he offered me a position on his staff. So I started in high school part-time. I worked for him all throughout college. And it was a great way to give back to the local community. I was My job was to help people fix everyday quality of life problems, right? So you'd get a call from someone who had a problem with you know, heat in their building, and you'd have to try to solve it. Or you get a call from someone who was trying to resolve a landlord-tenant dispute, or they wanted a stop sign in the corner. Really like bread and butter 
local neighborhood quality of life issues. So it was a great experience for me to learn, A, what issues people deal with on a daily basis and what matters to people, because you have to meet people where they are in a lot of ways. And B, it taught me how to interact with people. You know, some people come at problems and they're very open-minded and they say, hey, I just need some help. Other people come at you, you know, 100 miles an hour and say, I can't believe this, that, you know, and you you have to learn how to deal with people. And and really, um, it was a great experience. And I took those lessons and then I ended up moving uh, to Washington, D.C. after college. I went to Hunter College and I worked on Capitol Hill for uh, a U.S. senator for a number of years. I started with a senator working on his campaign back in 2006 in New Jersey. Then I was offered a full-time position down in his office. And again, I started out answering phones, taking calls from constituents who wanted to make a you know, call about, I'm concerned about this immigration bill. I want the senator to support comprehensive immigration reform. I want the senator to oppose comprehensive immigration reform. It gives you a feel for what matters to people. And then I transitioned from there to a policy role where I worked on issues like veterans benefits and child support enforcement. Nice. And then I co-led an investigation into the release of the Lockerbie bomber by Scotland through the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So I had a bunch of varied experiences there before I moved back home. So that's how I got my start, essentially. And when I came back, I worked at a group called Citizens Committee for New York City, which gives micro grants to community groups for neighborhood improvement projects. And I started seeing that the Bay Ridge that I had left a couple of years earlier, when I, before I moved to D.C., was still the same Bay Ridge. We were still facing the same issues. Like I said earlier, you trace a lot of those problems to what's happening in Albany, to the dysfunction of Albany. Yeah. You remember you know, for a long time, we had the last couple of years of the previous decade, it was pretty bad up in Albany. We had a governor who resigned in the corruption scandal. We had his replacement give a press conference where he basically admitted to, you know, cheating on his wife, right? We had so many members of the Assembly and the Senate being indicted and arrested and convicted. Uh, So we had all these challenges, all these problems. Deja vu. Deja vu, right? And then again, we still didn't have an elevator at 86th Street. And again, we still had problems with rent laws being weakened. And again, we had problems with pedestrian safety. And we had problems with education funding where the city was owed billions of dollars from Albany due to the campaign for fiscal equity lawsuit. And I traced all those issues back to Senator Golden, to Marty Golden, back in 2012. And I saw he is our voice, and he is not adequately articulating the needs of our neighborhood and fighting to solve these issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's how I decided. I saw no one else has run before. Damn it, I'm going to do it. Um, and that's what I did. You know, it scared the bejesus out of me, but I'm so glad I did because we talked about a lot of important issues that were not being addressed. And we met a lot of people across the entire district, not just in Bay Ridge. But in Diker Heights, in Bensonhurst, in Bath Beach, in Gravesend, in Homecrest, in Midwood, in Gerritsen, in Manhattan Beach, in Sheepshead Bay, in Marine Park. And people everywhere were saying, look, we agree. There are things that are not being adequately talked about. And I've just stayed engaged and involved ever since then. Uh, we know we co-founded the Bay Ridge Democrats. We were for a long time. It was an oxymoron to borrow Councilmember Brandon's you know, phrase that to have Bay Ridge Democrats. But the truth is, we are a Democratic neighborhood. And this is a Democratic district by a two to one margin. We just have to run smart, strong campaigns that focus on the issues that matter to people, and we have to do a hell of a job organizing, but it's possible to win seats here. You know, the average Democratic performance in this district is 57%. So you take every Democrat on the ballot from president on down to dog catcher, and you average up their vote totals, and it get 57%. The reason why Marty Golden continues to stay in office is because he hasn't been sufficiently challenged. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when he has, with the exception of my campaign, which still... I was outspent three to one. You know, I was outmanned, outgunned. So I'm not saying that my campaign was the model, but that was the best effort we ever gave. 
it takes a lot of efforts to unseat someone who's been there for so long. He had but a decade's worth head start. Of, of, of fundraising and head starting. Nobody else challenging that and consistently challenging is amazingly important. And that's not just for Bay Ridge, but wherever you are, if you're in any, any of our like surrounding neighborhoods or in the district as a whole, that's massively important is having really good dynamic primaries. And then that leads to really competitive generals. Well, and going back to what you said earlier about people participating in the primaries in New York State, that's where most of the elections get decided. If you're not taking part in the primary, then you're just going to take whatever's served to you in the general, and it's going to be Democrat-Republican. That's exactly right. People kind of misunderstand that Marty Golden isn't just a single state senator. He's also really the most powerful Republican state senator when it comes to issues dealing with New York. In the state Senate, he's the lone Republican New York City representative. He has a finger in all of those urban issues, and they need to tap him in order to have an influence in those. For example, in the last 15 years, Parkin has really only gotten worse in Bay Ridge. If you're talking about a car-centric mentality, that's to say nothing of alternative transit. That lays a lot of blame squarely there that he's really let us down on these issues for 15 years. And that's also, again, saying nothing about his time as a city council person. How do we fix, say, transit issues in Bay Ridge and across the entire district holistically? It's a great, uh, great, great question. It's an issue that I think everyone faces on a daily basis, right? Especially these last six months since the governor has declared the MTA to be a state of emergency, right? And I think the words he used were summer of hell, right, in some ways. And here's a great example as to the inaction of Albany, Since the governor's declared the state of emergency, up until the budget hearings on the governor's plan, there had not been a single legislative hearing to address the MTA's funding crisis. Yeah. I mean, that is just outrageous. What an abdication. Isn't Golden on the transit? He's on the MTA's Capital Review Board. But this is an indictment of all of Albany. There was not a single legislative hearing to even better understand the transit funding crisis and to come up with any solution, let alone bad solutions, any solutions to address this. The number of times you read that Albany is responsible, the mayor is responsible, Albany's responsible, the mayor's responsible for the MTA. Every single one of those news articles that you read ad nauseum this last summer, not a single legislative action was taken or even an attempt to look into it. Exactly right. And I think there's so many places we can start. We talk about funding the MTA, uh, which I think is a big piece of that. And the other piece of it, I think, is reforming how the MTA operates. Mm. We are in a neighborhood, and not just Bay Ridge, but the entire district, where we're not serviced very well by mass transit. You know, we have the R train, the N train, the D train, and the joke is always that's the rarely, the never, and the delayed. (laughs) Um, And then we have, you know, the F line, and we have just outside the district, but people use it at the B and Q out in Sheepshead Bay. Right. You know, and those are just the subway lines. Look at the, the bus lines we have, you know. We have to rely on buses to get east to west and west to east in this district. And buses here are very unreliable. In the last five years, Golden has voted to divert, I think it was $475 million in the MTA's operating budget for other uses, right? And they were proposals led by the governor. So I'm not trying to just finger point just at Marty Golden, but Golden took those votes and he voted for them without any plan to make up that lost revenue. So when we talk about how come we don't have enough R trains coming back to 59th Street, at six o'clock on a weeknight, when people are waiting twenty minutes, maybe we could have taken a slice of that four hundred and seventy-five million to fund more rush hour commuter service. Yeah. When we talk about how we have to wait twenty minutes or thirty minutes to catch a B one to go up Eighty Sixth Street, well, maybe we could have taken some of that money to run more buses. The wall collapse that happened at Eighty Sixth mm-hmm. Street. 
back in December, maybe some of that money could have gone to doing station inspections, right? So we don't have to shut down service for 12 hours. Thank God it was on a Sunday, not on Monday. These are things that are avoidable. The MTA's funding crisis is really acute. And, you know, there's a number of proposals now being discussed to try to fund them. They're just drops in the bucket. You know, what the MTA really needs is billions, not $1 billion, not $2 billion. We need billions of dollars to really update and upgrade the MTA system. And there'll be ways to kind of figure out how we get there. There's not going to be one single pot of gold that we're going to find, but we'll patch our way there. But I think coupled with the funding is the reform of how the MTA operates. Right now, there's not a single rider's representative who has a voting power on the MTA board. There is one non-voting member for all of New York City. That should be changed. Wow. And something I talked about in my last campaign that I'm talking about now as well, there should be a voting member from each borough representing mm-hmm. ridership. Yeah. Okay. Look at the MTA's website of their board. How many of the people on the website, their board members, do you think ride the buses or trains on a daily basis? Yeah. I'm going to guess maybe it's like a 20-member board or something. I'm going to guess maybe two or three. Well, how many of them suffer on delays? How many of them wait 15, 20 minutes for their R train? How many of them are stuck in the middle of, you know, between two stations without any announcement as to what's happening? When you don't have leadership that reflects the people you're trying to serve, you're not effectively serving the people that you're there to help. I think the MTA needs to be held more accountable to its ridership because that's its ultimate customer base. And you start by doing that by making sure that riders are represented with a voting voice on the MTA's board. A lot of times when you talk about ridership, you're really focusing on commuters, but Bay Ridge and a lot of our district skews older. We have really vibrant shopping districts, 86th Street, going all the way down through the core of our neighborhoods. The best way that seniors get to those spots are all of the local buses. Getting from Shore Hill to get to 86th Street, you're relying on buses. They're starting to spend their money not just taking care of their seniors, but they're spending their money getting chartered buses that will go let these people do their grocery shopping on a day-to-day basis. This is a multi-billion dollar economic problem. Yeah, no, it's really a systemic problem that requires a lot of different solutions. But you're absolutely right. So many people are not able to take advantage of the system that we have right now and are in some ways left behind. We talked a little bit earlier about alternative transportation and the way that we use the waterfront and how that could be impacted. Do you want to talk a little bit about yeah, that? Sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you, can, you kind of hit on a lot of great issues there. Last time I ran, I was very public in my support for bike lanes. I think bike lanes are a great way for people to get around, both from one neighbor to the other, but as well within our neighborhood. I can ride my bike to the supermarket, park my bike there, and load up on groceries and come back home, right? I can ride my bike to a restaurant for dinner. That's a great way to get around. So I think there needs to be more support for sharing space on the roadways. When these issues came up before the community board a couple years ago, I was one of the few people who voted in favor of the road diet proposed by DOT, which would have reconfigured 4th Avenue, as well as create additional space for bike lanes in the neighborhood. So I think there was only four or five of us at the time who voted for it, and I was one of the four. I still adamantly believe that you need to do things with community consultation, for sure, but I think the community is calling out for this. There are people who are using bike lanes. I think there are people who are riding bikes. This is not a new phenomenon. Bikes have been around for 200, 300 years, right? This is nothing new. It's not like a Segway is taking over our streets, right? We're not going that far. <laughs> so I think there is a lot of opportunity for alternative transit options. You know, we can bring city bike down to Bay Ridge, you mm. know, at least to the subway stations, right? Yeah, absolutely. Even if it's not everywhere, what if you had a couple of docks by subway stations? I would take a city bike from 59th Street to my house off the 86th Street line. If instead of waiting for the R train for 20 minutes, I'll hop on a bike. I don't have that option now. Yeah. Right now I have to walk. Talking about ferry service, you know, we were thankfully able to bring the ferry back to Bay Ridge through the city's new ferry plan, which is great. But there's been a big push to connect the ferry to Staten Island. 
because so many people in Bay Ridge especially travel to Staten Island and they pay that exorbitant toll. We should have the ferry go from Bay Ridge to Staten Island. It's one extra stop. It's not that earth shattering. It doesn't have to go to where the Staten Island ferries land in St. George. It can go just right across where it used to historically. Yeah, we talked about that with Jack. Yeah, it's exactly right. Or, you know, even putting another ferry dock out in Coney Island, which is outside of our district. But imagine the number of people you can attract uh, if they're able to hop on a ferry from Manhattan and go right to Coney Island in the summertime to watch a ball game or to go to the amusement parks or go to the beach, right? All these great ways of getting around that we're just not even talking about. And I think they're missed opportunities for sure. Yeah. And some people will argue the ferry isn't the fastest way of going about it. But the thing is, is that it's a choice. It's a variation on the possible routine. It might not be great for your commute, but I know for a fact that a lot of people who work, for example, in the financial district absolutely love the new ferry service that's in place. If you're getting on the subway at a specific time where it's absolutely crowded, that ferry is an amazing way of commuting. Because you hear people both who are going for office in Albany and people who are federally going for office talking about these same issues. Like, where's the space for collaboration there? Technically, the space along the highway is a state DOT controlled but basically the city maintains a lot of that, at least on the park side. So the, the Belt Parkway is a state highway, but the bike path is actually city-controlled or administered, rather. So there is some type of power sharing there. In terms of how the federal government interplays there, back in 2007, Congressman Vito Fasella made this big splash by announcing he secured $20 million to redo the bike path. That money never actually came through. The way the bike path was repaired was through a $14 million emergency designation from DEP because the Bay Ridge portion of the bike path was starting to collapse. The bulkheads were starting to collapse. And it was an emergency declaration by DEP to fix it. But if you notice, the bike path from Shore Road or Owl's Head to the bridge is in fairly decent shape, though there are starting to be potholes and things developing there. Once you go past that along the Bath Beach Bensonhurst portion, it's a mess. It's riddled with potholes and pockmarks and it's not even and there's holes everywhere because that, that was never redone. And there you're starting to see the bulkheads kind of starting to fade away. There needs to be a massive reinvestment in that waterfront space. And something that I'm very excited about, and an issue that I've been talking to a lot of people about for a number of years, has been the creation of a new Narrows Waterfront Park. Basically, a single park to link the entire existing bike path, which goes from 69th Street Pier, the Veterans Pier, all the way out to Bay Parkway, uh, which is four miles of space. We already have it, and people are already using it. But it's so overutilized and underdeveloped, it has the potential to be just like the West Side Highway with a bike path and jogging path along there. We can put mini docks out into the water. Once you get past the Verrazano Bridge, there's a huge grassland, which now is just grass and a couple of tree saplings. You can do some public art there. You can have a whole thing. There's so much potential in building a park space here. And you can actually do it in a way that's resilient because... If you remember what happened in Superstorm Sandy, the water flooded into Bath Beach yeah. from the Narrows, and it literally crashed over the bike path because of the way the tidal swells came up. Mm-hmm. The state has proposed elevating that portion of the bike path mm-hmm. and create a natural berm of about right. six feet high. But the city has not yet agreed to that proposal. And so it's kind of in this bureaucratic tussle between who's going to get the money and how it's going to be spent. There's really no active leadership calling for redevelopment of our waterfront space. And I think that there's a prime opportunity to give the community a real gem that they're already using and that they'll have for decades to come. 
and a way to do it that's resilient and it's sustainable and it actually increases people's safety. One of the great things about this specific Senate district is it's the waterfronts of a huge chunk of Brooklyn. Number one, this is exactly the kind of thing that connects a majority of the district. Also, I know that these are the same problems that, for example, Gerritsen Beach is facing because they got hit horribly during Superstorm Sandy as well. That's exactly right. And again, you know what I said earlier, this has been an issue that I think the reason it's a problem is because there's just been a lack of leadership. It's complicated. You know, there's a lot of competing interests. I get that. But you really need someone to take the reins and say, okay, let's figure this all out and let's make this happen because it should happen. There's no reason for it not to happen. And once it does, it will be a fantastic addition to the neighborhood. Imagine getting on a ferry, getting off at the 69th Street Pier, riding on this brand new waterfront park with your bike and going all the way out to Coney Island and then taking a brand new ferry from Coney Island back home to whatever. The amount of economic opportunities we'll be providing for people in Southern Brooklyn, local businesses, we can do bike shares on the pier, we can have restaurants or pop-up carts, we can do a whole bunch of stuff. When you look at the existing bike path and you look at the Belt Parkway and then right next to the highway, you have Shore Road Park and you have Diker Beach Park. You have huge acreage of existing parks with such terrible connections. So we don't even associate the bike path with Shore Road, right? right? Mentally, we don't, even though they're what? 300 feet apart, yeah, 400 feet apart, and you have two or three bridges that get you across, there could be a unified park presence on the waterfront. Shore Road Park is beautiful. People going back and forth, and you can have bathrooms there. One of the biggest complaints of seniors who utilize the bike path or the walkway is that there are no restrooms for them, and there are no water fountains for them. So it makes it very difficult for them to use it, and they want to see that more. You could have really a way to provide that type of infrastructure through the existing park system, and then thereby increasing more usage of the space. I know that Sunset Park right now is doing bike lanes that go off of the shore and bring people and lead people up into their commercial districts. Bay Ridge doesn't have that. What has been stifling that? When these proposals came before the community board uh, the last couple of years, there was very little support for it. I voted for more bike lanes in Bay Ridge. I voted for the DOT's proposed changes to 4th Avenue to make 4th Avenue safer. It wasn't just about slowing down cars. It was about making it safer for pedestrians, Yeah, people who are on the streets all day, every day. And that's something I think we lose sight of in our conversations about traffic and transportation. It's not just about cars, right? Obviously, we want to make sure that cars are moving and we we don't want to create bottlenecks. But at the same time, it's about making sure we're doing it safely. And pedestrian safety is a huge issue in our neighborhood. It's been an issue for a long time. Thankfully, we have some very, very good advocates locally who have been on this issue for the last couple of years. It's a group called Breaks, Bay Ridge Advocates for Keeping Everyone Safe. So circling back to our earlier conversation about getting involved civically, they were going to the community board meetings month after month after month, making pushes, making pleas, trying to come up with new ideas to how we can improve pedestrian safety. Because a number of the people who formed this group were hit by cars. You know, they had near misses. They're afraid to cross the street with their baby carriage because a car will take a turn. I'm afraid to cross the street at night because of Marty Golden. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> uh, there, you know, and so you know, there's a number of these issues that I think aren't really addressed in the conversation when we talk about traffic and transportation. The city just announced that last year was the safest year on record for pedestrians in terms of fatalities, which is fantastic news. I think Vision Zero is going a long way to addressing it. But this is not just about the fatalities. It's about changing drivers' behaviors, right? I admit, when I get behind the wheel, sometimes I go more than 25 miles an hour. I'm not going to lie about that. I think we all do, right? And even though that's the speed limit. 
it's about reminding ourselves as to what is the new normal when it comes to driving and what responsibilities we have when we're behind the wheel of a machine that weighs two and a half tons and that can kill people. Let's be honest. I mean, that's, that's what these cars are. There's so much we can be doing to improve pedestrian safety, especially among turns, especially with cyclists on the road or people crossing the streets. Look at the Bay Ridge Parents page at any given night and the number of complaints about pedestrian safety, the number of near misses that people document and talk about, the number of times where they say, I was crossing the street and someone just pulled a U-turn on 3rd Avenue and almost hit yep. me as I was crossing yes. with the light. This is not a one-off. This is every single night. You can look at these Bay Ridge pages and see this being a real issue. You know, talking about it around school zones, you know, the fight to get speed cameras in school zones was an arduous process. You know, today in New York City, we have 130 cameras that we spread around 2,000 schools in the city. That is a woefully inadequate number. Every school should have speed zone cameras set up around it. The only reason why we have 130 is because brakes back in 2014 and I was proud to work with them on this when I was organizing with them, we petitioned and we lobbied and we rallied in front of Marty Golden's office. And we held a rally, I think it was May of 2014, actually, where parents brought their carriages and their strollers and barricaded his office and said, we need these cameras. It is not safe. It is not safe for us to cross the street. It is not safe for our kids to cross the street. We need these cameras. And it was because of that local advocacy that we were able to get him to support a small number, 130 is a small number. I think last year they tried to increase it to 700, and he was opposed to it. And this is an issue that affects not just parents, not just seniors, but pedestrians of all ages, oh, yeah. right? We just um, took a drive in with my friends who are from Jersey, and they're like, oh, hell no, we are not driving in Bay Ridge. Like These are like Jersey drivers that are comfortable with Manhattan traffic saying, no, we're not dealing with the car culture in Bay Ridge. It's just terrible. Well, and, and unlike a lot of the issues that we're talking about, you know, we've touched on transportation can be car owners versus people who aren't. Property taxes is renters versus homeowners. Use of the streets in whatever way is actually a universal issue for everybody who lives here. If Golden just disappeared into thin air tomorrow and there were no more obstacles, how would we really change car culture in Bay Ridge? I mean, I think the first one we already talked about was putting speed cameras in school zones. And the reason why these cameras work is because once you get caught speeding once or twice, you don't do it again. Mm. It's very, very simple. It's this very, very simple behavioral... A functioning deterrent? What? Right, exactly. This is how this works. So that is first and foremost, I think we need that everywhere. And it's about changing people's culture. I mean... Part of that comes from more enforcement. I think we do need some more traffic enforcement. I'd love to see more cars getting tickets for pulling U-turns on 3rd Avenue in front of cop cars than I would about seeing a parking enforcement agent get someone who is a minute and a half late to putting coins in their meter, right? Yeah. I think that is where we need to be shifting our priorities because if you get caught once, you get caught twice, you won't do it again. Or if you do get caught again shame on you. You should keep getting penalties. You should keep getting fined. It's about changing the culture. And the way you do that is through education and then just constant enforcement. One thing that we've been talking about with breaks the last couple months is maybe doing some public demonstrations of the need to slow down. So let's pick some of the, the high-speed corridors in our neighborhood. And let's just stage demonstrations where we have people out there holding signs saying, slow down, kids live here, or things like that. They're one-offs. But when you do them time and time again, it sinks in people's minds. There's not one solution, but we just need to get people to recognize that pedestrian accident can happen to anybody. It doesn't discriminate against on age or whether you own a car or not. Everyone has a responsibility to use the roads safely and responsibly, without a doubt. 
And by the way, that also means that we have to crack down on pedestrians who jaywalk, who cross against the light. Everyone has a responsibility here. So I don't want to just say it's not an anti-car position. It is a smart car position. It's a smart pedestrian position. And it's a smart cyclist position as well. We're all in this together. We all have to do our part. So what are your thoughts on congestion charges? Very, very relevant and very, very good question to ask. I'm very open to the idea of congestion pricing, but I do want to see it linked specifically to transit funding. Right now, the proposal under consideration will not dedicate that revenue source just to transit funding. That's critical. We need that lockbox of funding because otherwise it's just another increase for people to pay and it won't see a dime of improvement on our subways and buses. So if we're going to ask people to give up their cars to drive into wherever, to the city, in exchange for having a more reliable transit system, that's fair and that's fine. But if we're not going to actually follow through on that promise of a more reliable and accessible transit system, well, then no deal. I want to see how this kind of shakes out. There's been a number of competing proposals. The governor has a proposal. There's the Move New York plan, which would couple congestion pricing with lowering tolls, which I think has a lot of merit as well. Because don't forget, the point of the fee is to disincentivize certain behaviors, right? So that's just not an issue about congestion in Manhattan. It's about disincentivizing behaviors in terms of which roads we use and how we use them. And truck drivers coming in through New Jersey, through Staten Island, over the Verrazano, onto the Gowanus, you know, they'll go into the city, drop their goods off and go out the George Washington Bridge because they're not paying tolls on the way in, right? So it's about how we use the toll structures to incentivize or disincentivize certain behaviors. So there's a lot of interesting ideas out there, which I'm very open to. But the devil's in the details. And so I want to see exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about congestion pricing. Well, and I think that what you pointed out about making sure that money goes back into the transit system is absolutely critically important. You know, on the one hand, we've got all this transportation you know, stuff, and that's really directly impacted by property use and housing and how that comes into the fabric of the neighborhood. What are your thoughts as far as affordable housing and zoning in Bay Ridge and in the rest of the district? Affordable housing, more of it. Those are my thoughts. Yes. Uh, All right. Yeah. We need, uh, we look, we're facing a housing crisis of massive proportions, not just in the neighborhood, but across the entire city. By some estimates, we need somewhere like 500 or 600,000 new units of affordable housing. The mayor's plan is only going to get us 200,000, and that's only 80,000 that will be new. There's so much left to do in order to make sure that we are actually providing enough affordable housing. And let's be very clear about what we're talking about. Affordable housing is not low income housing. Affordable housing is housing for a teacher and a firefighter who maybe make a combined salary of 90000 or 100000 and they're trying to live in this neighborhood. Yeah, It's very hard to do that, yeah. to live in this neighborhood, even with $100,000. And there are so many people who make so much less than that, so I can't even begin to fathom what life is like for them. It's very, very hard to find affordable apartments. Rents keep going up. Over the last decade, rents have increased by a third across the entire city. So we're seeing the number of rent-stabilized units shrinking because of existing rent laws, which are controlled by Albany. It's amazing to me how New York City, which has the most acute housing crisis in the country almost, has no control over its own rental laws. And that's what requires the repeal of the Erstat law, which basically gives Albany control. So you have state senators and assembly members from up in, you know, God knows where in New York, right? West Chazzy, New York, you know, at the very, very tip of the state, who have more of a say on what people pay for rent here in Brooklyn, here in Bay Ridge, than the mayor does, than than anyone else does. That is ridiculous. That is absurd. And I think that needs to change immediately. That has been stopped by Republicans in the state Senate time and time and time and time and time and time again. 
We need the immediate repeal of the Erstat law to give New York City control of its own housing stock. This is definitely a recurring theme that I've heard from a lot of people, both in state office and just people that you talk to. It's like, why does Albany have so much control over the minutia of running New York City? And I've heard it actually from people upstate as well. It's like, why does Albany control things that they'd like to control at the other end of the state? Yeah. People who've already owned a house in Bay Ridge who paid off their mortgage and stuff might not realize just how difficult it is. I'm a Bay Ridge native whatever that means. And I wanted to get a house in Bay Ridge. And I was thinking about how am I going to go about getting a house? I have a good paying job. I make $62,000 a year. How do I get a house here? That's above average. Mm -hmm. But when I mentioned the $62,000, they just looked at me like, do you have someone who can co-sign with you? (laughs) Do you have someone who, who makes a little bit more than that? And I was like, well, maybe I know someone that makes maybe like in the 90s and they're like "Mm." so just so people who might have gotten a house here in like the 50s realize just how difficult it is to get one here now just a new family trying to start out it's debilitating i mean i have an alert set up so that i can keep an eye on what everyone in bay ridge is doing um but it it, you know (laughs) google searches for bay ridge and pops stuff up in my um google reader and when you look at the prices of rentals the prices of apartments in terms of buying an apartment. And then you see the jump. I mean, you can still find what I as a transplant think of as a fairly affordable New York City apartment in Bay Ridge. But when you start looking at the housing prices, I remember a friend who had to move to Long Island because there was nothing in Brooklyn under a million dollars. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's outrageous. In some ways, you want to see people making long-time investments into their property. You want to see the values you know, mm-hmm. go up. And that's just the natural course yeah. of things, right? So It's not about bemoaning people who have a lot of equity in their property, which is great. We want to see that. But we want everyone to be able to have access to that type of opportunity. You know, and if we're going to continue to define the American dream as owning a home, we have to make it easier for people to be able to do that in the first place. One of the ideas that I'm really excited about is the idea of creating a first-time homebuyer savings program for people who are trying to save money for a down payment. Because let's face it, one of the biggest obstacles to being able to afford a place. I mean, we've already swallowed the pill in terms of having to pay a million in the first place, right? Okay, fine, we'll do it. Pay it off over 30 years. You know, two-person family, two incomes will make it work, right? How do you save $100,000 for a 10% down payment on a million-dollar home when you're paying rent through the nose, right? And when you're still paying off your student loan debt? You know, millennials especially, which makes up the largest voting demographic in the country, by the way, so this is our time, you know, they are faced with 300% more student loan debt than their parents did just one generation ago, just one generation. So they have high student loan debt and they can't afford to buy a home because rents have increased by a third over the last decade. So they can't seem to save money for that down payment, right? How do we make it easier for people? I think we should incentivize people to save money for a down payment, just like we do with college savings accounts, the 529 plans, which is a national program administered by each state. We should be doing the same thing to save money for a down payment for your first-time home. We have great programs to give you first-time home buyer interest rates, or maybe it's 3% down if you do an FHA loan or whatever, but you got to take out the mortgage insurance. You have all these things, but it's still even getting to that 3% or that 5% or that 10% was a lot of work. Let's make it just a little bit easier for people. Not talking about giving away the store. Let's make it just a little bit easier for people. Yeah, this sounds um, like something the Republicans could have included in the tax bill that would have exactly actually right. made life a lot easier for a lot of middle-class <laughs> Americans. That's exactly right. This would make a huge difference for so many people. I know I, I'm a lifelong resident of Bay Ridge. I'm going to find it challenging to be able to buy a home in the neighborhood that I call home and that I, I can't imagine myself living anywhere else because of that, right? 
it's very difficult for a lot of people. There's a lot that we can be doing. And on the flip side, you know, once you own that home, it's about the property taxes you have to pay to be able to stay in that home. Property tax reform is an incredibly hot button issue. The mayor and the city council have said they want to tackle it in this term. But it is a very thorny problem which requires both city and state interventions. So the state controls the property tax system in New York City. New York City's Department of Finance controls the assessment rates. So when you get your tax bill in the mail, you're paying the Department of Finance. And when you see an increase in your assessment rate, that's controlled by the city. But the state controls the percentages that you pay based on the type of house that you live in. That's the only income revenue generator for the city, aside from its income tax, that it has control over. That's why you see such wild variations in terms of assessments. You know, I think just now a bunch of the bills went out for this quarter, and people saw their assessments jump astronomically, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars a clip. That is crazy. A lot of that can be challenged, and you can definitely challenge some of those assessments, but it's a long, drawn-out process. But people in this neighborhood are paying a lot more than people in frankly, wealthier neighborhoods like Park Slope and Cobble Hill and elsewhere because of the inequities that are built into the property tax system. It's not uncommon for a family in Diker Heights, maybe have a four-bedroom, right? Nothing outlandish or extravagant for them to be paying $10,000, $11,000, $12,000 a year in property taxes. That's a lot of money. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we have a system that basically gives away property tax rebates to wealthy developers, of luxury condo buildings in Manhattan and elsewhere for nothing, for nothing. Can I ask who has a say in that in Albany? Who has a say on that? Well, it's a great thing you asked that. I'll give you a great example. And this is an example as why I think Marty Golden has let our neighborhood down. He authored a bill about three years ago now to give a 95% real estate tax abatement to the 157 building in Manhattan. So it's not even just like it's a whole class of buildings. Right. One building got this tax break. Can we just write legislation for me? Yeah. <laughs> like individuals? It like, happens. Let's call this, is, office. this is what we're spending time on. So oh my God. So the top penthouse in this building, it's a luxury condo building. It's through the 421A plan. 421A is a tax break given to developers who promise to develop affordable housing in exchange for being able to build luxury housing or to change Mm. their zoning. So there's merit, land's expensive, right? I'm all for incentivizing smart development for affordable housing, but not when you're giving away $95 million to a luxury condo building. The top penthouse in this building sold for $115 million. I know I certainly cannot afford, and I'm going to venture to say that most people in this neighborhood cannot afford. I feel good saying no listeners of this podcast can afford. Right. So that that owner of that building, that's just for one unit in that building, his annual property taxes on a $115 million purchase is $20,000 a year. The family in Diker Heights is paying twelve for their $1.5 million. So here's a guy whose home is valued more than 100 times higher than the family in Diker Heights or Bay Ridge paying just $8,000 more. And the lead sponsor of this bill in the Senate was Marty Golden. And he was quoted in the paper saying, this is a good project. This is a good bill. I'm proud to do it. I would do it again. Shame on everybody. I mean, it had to pass the assembly, which is Democratic controlled. It had to get signed by the governor. So shame on every single person who voted for this and shame on the governor for signing it. You know, this is not just a Marty Golden thing, but Golden was the lead sponsor of that. So well, what, and, what, and as you said, as the lone Republican in New York City, he has a bigger he say has than most. a bigger most. say in that. Exactly right. So when we're talking about ways that Marty Golden's let us down the last 15 years, and if he likes to bill himself as being a champion of working people, 
and a champion of middle class families and working class families. And, you know, I represent our neighborhoods. I'm fighting for our neighborhoods. I'm fighting for tax relief. I'm fighting for this. I'm fighting for that. You're giving away the store. What the hell business do you have giving away a 95% tax break to a billionaire? How does that help anybody in this neighborhood? If there was a higher concentration of affordable housing developed because of that project, I'd be open to it. But the Independent Budget Office did an analysis of that tax break, and it showed that the city was going to lose out on $44 million total revenue over the course of the 10 years that tax break is in effect. That money could have been better spent building 306, I think the number they came out with, units of affordable housing instead of the 60 that the developer ended up building in order to get that tax break. That's yet again, diverting public money in private pockets. Every dollar we spend on a tax break for a billionaire is a dollar less for school lunches. Mm -hmm. It's a dollar less for homeless shelters and homelessness assistance. It's a dollar less for rush hour subway service and rush hour bus service. Mm -hmm. It's a dollar less for streetlights. It's a dollar less for pothole repair. It's a dollar less for all the critical things that people need. And this goes back to what we talked about in the very beginning of our conversation about people understanding the impact that local politics actually has on them. This is a conversation and this is an issue when I talk to voters who maybe are not as politically engaged or are not as ideologically driven. They can relate to this. Yeah, They're getting that tax bill in the mail right now. When they hear that Marty Golden gave a 95% discount to someone else who's a billionaire, that resonates. And that's a concrete example as to where Golden has let us down. And that just builds the case as to why he's been an ineffective state senator. It's funny because so often you hear on the Republican side been saying, you know, how do you pay for it? How do you pay for it? And when you're talking about that kind of a price break, how many families in Bay Ridge could save thousands of dollars a year instead of that one rich person in Manhattan? I think people are okay paying taxes mm-hmm. when they see that their money's being used properly. Yeah. Right? Study after study after study is that the reason why people are hesitant to pay taxes is because they see stories about financial mismanagement or they see stories about wasted money or they see things like that. I get it. I don't want to see my money pissed down the drain. No one does, right? So if you make a concrete linkage between here are the taxes you're paying and here are the services you're getting and the services are adequate to meet your expectations for what you're paying for, then everybody's happy. But when we're living in a time when our schools are more overcrowded than ever, and we live in one of the most overcrowded school districts in the entire city, right here in District 20, when we're living in a time when rents are just skyrocketing and you feel like you can barely make two nickels together to pay your rent, or when the subways aren't running, or when the station walls collapse, or you know, so many other things happening, there's this fundamental sense that people have that my money's being wasted. And they're hesitant in saying, I don't want to put more money after bad. So that's where I think giving away breaks like this It might not necessarily result in a tax break directly for local people, but at least that's money that we can be spending. That's foregone revenue that can make a difference in all of these core essential services that people have an expectation and an entitlement to, frankly. If you're paying your taxes, you should be getting clean water to your house, right? You should be getting safe streets. You should be getting an education system that is world-class for the money we're spending for it. These are not pie-in-the-sky things we're talking about. No, it's really not. And really, one of the ways we can make these kind of things a reality is to get more people involved in the political process. I mean, when you first ran against Marty, it was 2012 and you were only 26. What are some of the things you've learned along the way and advice that you might have to help encourage other people to follow your lead and stories about what it's like to dive headfirst into politics? Aside from trying to make a difference and actually learning about the political process, Inevitably, you're going to come across people and experiences that will stick with you forever. 
and you'll have these memories and stories you can just tell time and time again. And you don't know when they're going to happen. So I'll, I'll give you an example. I was working on the Senate campaign in 2006 in New Jersey. We were in one of the most competitive Senate races of that year. I was campaigning for uh, Senator Menendez. We had people like Ted Kennedy come and Joe Biden and John Kerry and Russ Feingold and all of these senators. Barack Obama came when he was a senator. He did a rally with us. This seat mattered. And so part of my job was to be the driver for these out-of-state surrogates. So Ted Kennedy came to campaign for us twice. The first time he comes to campaign, it was my job. I had to rent a van, and I had to go meet him at Teterboro Airport when his plane landed. I drove right up onto the tarmac, and I was there to meet him. You know, I had practiced the route the day before. I was 21 years old at the time. So A, I was nervous because I'm 21 years old, and my driving skills were not as great as they are now because driving comes with experience. And I'm going to have Ted Kennedy in my car, the Ted Kennedy, sitting in my car next to me. His wife, Vicky, came and a bunch of his staff members and whatever. And I had to play it cool. You know, I couldn't freak out as a 21-year-old political <laughs> nerd who carries a copy of the Constitution in their wallet, you know, like get so excited about these things. I had to keep my cool. I met one of his staffers in Jersey the day before. We did the route together. And at one point, I took a really quick turn. We stopped the car. He goes, well, just so you know, so tomorrow when you're driving, just remember, you know, we're going to observe all traffic laws and we're going to you know, drive carefully. <laughs> let's, you know, not... let's not, you know, get into accidents. Don't, don't worry about speeding. I was like, yeah, of course, I got it. Like, I think I, I was waiting for a car to come and I turned before the car got there. I didn't remember the full details. But right, basically, right. he was like, just make sure you can do this tomorrow. So anyway, so the following morning, it's around 730. I pull up to Teterboro and Kennedy's plane had just landed. You know, I pull the car right up and a small prop plane and it comes down and the door is open and there's Ted Kennedy at the top of the plane. His hair is disheveled. It's all a mess. And he's just looking around and he gets led down the stairs. I think his wife was holding his hand. They were walking down the stairs together. And he comes into the car and his wife, Vicky, sits right behind. You know, we had two captain seats in the second row and his staff piled in. And then Kennedy is just kind of slumped over. And it looked like, you know, his hair is all a mess and disheveled and he wasn't saying anything. He didn't say hi to me. It looked like someone woke him up in the middle of the night, threw him on a plane, and didn't tell him where he was going. Right? That's that's what I. You might what, have been kidnapping Ted Kennedy. That's what I thought you know, as a 21 year old. Right, right. You know, now having worked for politicians for a number of years in different elected capacities, I understand. You know, they lead very busy lives and they're very human. And you know what? If you woke me up at four in the morning to get on a plane somewhere, I would be groggy as hell too. Like I, I get it now, right? But in my mind, I think Ted Kennedy. I think the white knight of liberalism, right? And that's what I pictured coming down the stairs, you know, with the aura behind him. It wasn't really like that. We were on our way to our first event, and he had to do a radio interview. I forget the call-in, but basically he was going to do like a 10-minute call-in as we were going to the first event. So his staff member, 15 minutes into the ride, dials up the call and preps it up, you know, gives him the phone to send it, okay, you're on. So Kennedy like reaches back, grabs the phone, and he holds it out for a second. And then he just like pats his hair, and he shakes his head, and he just snaps into it. And, wow. he, and he puts the phone to his ear and for the next 15 minutes he did not stop he was on fire i mean i can i tell you it was a complete night and day from just a few minutes earlier he was on it and he was talking about why senator menendez was the best candidate for that race and about the record of our opponent who at the time was tom kane jr the former governor's son and he didn't miss a beat the Ted Kennedy that you think about, right? The Ted Kennedy that you know can be so eloquent and so articulate and so amazing at defining democratic values. And just moments before, he was just slumped over and, you know, not saying anything. And I was just... Without a coffee, without a bagel, without... That's the mark of someone who is good. I mean, that was just absolutely fantastic. 
Yeah. Um, so that was a great experience. Then we spent the whole day together. He came back about three or four weeks later, and we, I drove him around again the following time. And that second time, he's getting back into the car, and he's having trouble with his seatbelt. His wife, Vicky, was again with us, and she was in the captain's seat behind, and she was leaning forward to try to help him. And he was snapping at her. Believe me, I can do it on my own. I don't need your help with my seatbelt, right? <laughs> I, you know, believe me, I got it. I'll figure out. He's like fumbling with the seatbelt. I, I can figure it out. And then there was just silence in the car for like 20 minutes because they had a little, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. husband and wife's tense moment. Yeah. And, I, you know, elected officials, these people that we idolize, that we put up on these pedestals, our heroes, they're human. And that was one of the first times that I realized that. And I've tried to remember that constantly because we put such expectations into the people that we elect, that we believe in. And they're bound to let us down sometimes because everyone's human. And that was a great reminder of that lesson. Another story I'll share with you guys quickly, because I know we're running out of time, is when I drove Joe Biden, he came to campaign for us for a full day. It was pouring rain that day, absolutely pouring rain. And we were running late to a number of our events because Biden likes to talk to people and we were driving slower and this and that. And the entire time we were together, he was just such a great down-to-earth person. And he was asking me questions about my family and about school and about what I wanted to do and why I liked working on the campaign. And he didn't have to say anything. I could have just been the guy that was driving him. But he took such, such an interest in everything that we were doing together that day. And at one point, we were running late to an event. And he said, listen, Andrew, don't worry about getting there on time. I'd rather let's get there safely. Slow down. Don't feel any pressure. We'll get them when we get there. And as you know, you know, his family was killed in the car accident right after his election to the Senate. Yeah. So he takes these things very, very seriously. And at the end of the night, it was like 10 o'clock or so, I dropped him back off at the Metro Park Amtrak station in Edison, New Jersey. And we're waiting for the train to come. We're sitting in the car and he takes his cufflinks off his sleeves and he gives them to me as a thank you. And they say, Joseph R. Biden, U.S. Senate on them. He could have done that for everybody. I'm sure he could have had like a stash of them. I don't care. Right? It doesn't matter. I spent a day with Joe Biden, Mm -hmm. someone who I looked up to even then. Mm -hmm. I've kept them and I've cherished them ever since. And I've only worn them twice. I wore them election day 2012 because I thought there was a great connection there, a good luck charm. Mm -hmm. And then I wore them January 19th last year, the day before he left office, just because he made such an impression upon me as someone who cares very much about helping people. You know, you can agree or disagree with his politics or this or that, but he's someone who I think undoubtedly cares about the people that he represents and takes that very personally. And in that regard, I've always looked up to him. Those are my two great campaign stories. And that's why getting involved in the campaign, you just never know. I had no idea when I volunteered for this campaign, they ended up hiring me, that I ended up driving Ted Kennedy two months later. I had no idea. Things just happen in campaigns that'll be memorable and that'll be so rewarding. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us, Andrew. It's been great. Thank you, guys. This was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. All right. Good luck in November. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Andrew, for sitting down to talk with us. Remember, folks, petitioning is underway this June for getting both Ross and Andrew on the ballot for this September. If you'd like to help Andrew out, you can read more about him and find links to donate and volunteer at andrewgonardis.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-W-G-O-U-N-A-R-D-E-S.com. Unlike last year's city council elections, this year's primaries cover a much larger area, and canvassers and volunteers are vital. Help change the political landscape of your neighborhood and get involved. Finally, for film and documentary fans in Bay Ridge, I have some great news. The 2018 Art of Brooklyn Film Festival is screening two events right here in the neighborhood, this Friday at PSIS 30, that's the old Green Church site, on 4th Avenue in Ovington. The first documentary, Brooklyn Roses, 
details a child's examining of her mother's feminist struggles from the 1950s to 1960s in working-class Brooklyn, told through the belongings left over after her passing, attempting to navigate a narrative that dances between fact and fiction. The documentary starts at 7 p.m. At 9 p.m., a series of shorts will be screening as well, including Under the Weather, about a middle-aged woman whose devotion to climate change becomes challenged by a group of trash-talking local kids, Brooklyn in July, the story of Frank Walker, an African-American World War II vet working as a chauffeur in 1945, who finds that while the war is at a close, other things are far from resolved. Cyclone, 90 Years of History on Wheels, explores the iconic roller coaster from the point of view of its devoted fans and operators. Also in the showcase is Head Above Water, about a devoted husband struggling to care for his wife who is suffering from Alzheimer's disease. The Heartaches is a 12-minute nightmare of warring personalities, as a radical black feminist, an intellectual hack, two spinsters, an Israeli and a libertarian end up clashing at a book club. Exit Interview turns the tables on Dave, who finds his task of conducting an exit interview for an outgoing employee, instead threatening to tear apart his own psyche. Finally, the short film The Waterfront explores Brooklyn's toxic Gowanus Canal from the unlikely point of view of the dedicated canoe club that plies its waters. It's awesome to see so many great films screening right here in the neighborhood. Head over to theartofbrooklyn.org to get tickets. As always, you can check out our show notes and find more at radiofreebayridge.org, and like and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, at Radio Free BR, or Instagram. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll be interviewing Matilde Frontis, who's running for the 46th Assembly District that includes Bay Ridge and Coney Island. And until next time, stay free, Bay Ridge.